notice that in this verse, the word kindness is used three times in just one verse. Kindness and severity, that is the difference between God's judgment and God's promises. The severity is the divine judgment of God. Okay? So what's being said here is you're either under severity of those who have fallen, those who did not believe, or you are under God's kindness because of God's kindness. Provided you continue in his kindness, and the verb there is a passive verb, means that you passively remain in God's kindness. He's the one that's keeping you in the faith. And it's only because of him. And if you separate yourself, then it says, otherwise you too will be cut off. And that applies to both natural branches the Jewish nation, and unnatural Gentiles. It applies to both. Because no matter which one you are, the only reason you are grafted in or are in that vine, that olive tree, is because of God. It's, it's not possible to be there without his kindness. Okay, then 23 is a very important verse. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And this is very important because this is saying that unbelief is not permanent. They can still be converted. And that's why we reject double predestination. Because if someone was predestined to be damned, then this passage would not apply. But all people, and we've talked about this, as long as they're in this world, there is a chance of the, them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So he, God, by his power, can graft them in again. What he's saying is, even though the Jews did not believe, some of them did, but those that did not believe, they can still hear the gospel come to faith and be grafted back in. And notice what it's attributed to. Power of God. Not their own doing, but the power of God. They can be grafted back in. You see, we talked about this. There's only one tree, only one olive tree. The roots are the Old Testament patriarchs and the promises made to them. The trunk is Jesus. The branches are Jews and Gentiles. But there is only one tree, only one tree. And that tree grows, and it's only possible to be a part of that tree 
by the power of God. By the power of God. Okay, 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? God makes the unnatural possible. He makes the unnatural possible. Again, the emphasis is by his power. By his power. All right, now, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All right. This is simply saying that there's a lot of Jews that do not believe and that God has worked that into his plan. That is the mystery we're talking about. That's the mystery. Don't rely on your own wisdom. This mystery had its roots in the Old Testament. The hardening, we have to say two things about it. Not all, but some. It is not saying that every Jew is an unbeliever. Many believed. But there was a hardening has come upon Israel, some of them. In other words, they do not believe the gospel. But this is not final, and it is not unalterable. Okay? It is not unalterable. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Gentiles enter Israel by faith in the gospel. All those who believe. Okay? All those who believe. But then it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, the first thing you don't want to do is construe this as every Jew will be saved, we think. Now, this is going to get tough, folks, so gird up your loins. The way this is usually defined is Israel is now the church. So when it's saying that all Israel will be saved, it's saying all believing Jews will be saved and all believing Gentiles will be saved. Remember, there's only one tree. They make up Israel. Okay. Not believing Gentiles and all Israel, that doesn't seem to square with it. Will be saved. All believers, not all ethnic Israel. There's got to be a, a distinction made 
between ethnic Israel and believing Israel. In other words, are you a Jew by birth? Are you a Jew by faith? But here's the ultimate question that cannot be answered. At least I have not seen it. There are people that come down on both sides of the issue. Is there going to be a mass conversion of the Jews before Jesus comes again? And that's the debate about this verse. Is there going to be a mass conversion of Jews before Christ comes again? Some scholars say yes, some scholars say no. The smart scholars say we don't know, we're waiting on God because we don't know. We simply do not know. We can make several statements. Nowhere in Scripture is such a mass conversion a stipulation of Christ coming again. In other words, it's never mentioned that this has to happen before Jesus comes again. That is not in there. It's not in the scriptures. It's not in the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus explains end times. It's not in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, it's not there. So we, we don't say that. The other thing that often comes up is, is there a separate way of salvation for the Jews apart from Jesus Christ that God will provide? We can say an absolute and unequivocal no to that. Because there are so many places in the New Testament that say you cannot come to the Father but through Jesus Christ. But, so we do not teach that there's some other way. If you reject Jesus Christ, you cannot come to the Father. You cannot inherit eternal life. So we say an absolutely no to that. But we cannot answer the question, is there going to be some kind of mass conversion of the Jews before? Uh, I still think it's, it, it is best to translate all Israel here is all believing Jews and all believing Gentiles. And if there is a mass conversion, that will be all the believing Jews. So that still would cover this if it happens. But we cannot say for certain. We simply do not know. Simply don't know. So, we move on. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish godliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. These quotes come from Isaiah. 
there are several things to notice. The deliverer will come from Zion. He comes from Zion to the people. The people do not come to him. He comes for them and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's going to be a covenant with the rescuer, the deliverer, and it will be a covenant of the forgiveness of sins that he will make with, of course, all those Jew and Gentile who believe, who believe. All right. And this, this passage refers to death. Well, it refers to the second coming. It refers to the second coming. All right. Now, verse 28, another line of thought. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. In other words, while they're in unbelief, they would be counted as enemies because they refuse to believe in the gospel for your sake. So the Gentiles can be grafted in. But then the next line, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In regards to God's choosing, that choosing is based on the promises made to the patriarch, the forefathers. And so, notice it says they are beloved. We cannot think that God hates unbelievers so bad that he doesn't try to save them. He still loves them. He's still trying to work in them and save them. But as far as from an earthly perspective, the Gentiles consider them enemies because they refuse to believe the gospel, but it's for their sake so the Gentiles can be grafted in. But don't think for a minute that God has stopped loving them because of their unbelief because he still wants to save them. He still wants to save them. That's still his purpose, still to be saved, all right? All right, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, let's talk about that. First of all, it's gracious gifts, free gifts of grace, okay? And what it's saying is, God does not repent, God is not sorry, God does not regret making the promises to the Jews in the first place. That's what's being said. The word there means regret or repent. He's not saying, I'm sorry, I made these promises to these people because they don't believe. That's not 
God does not regret his divine decision to make the promises to the Jews. He does not regret it. He does not repent of it. He's not sorry for it. He still loves them and seeks to call them by the word, okay, by the word to faith. So it's not, it's not as it says, it is not irrevocable, but it is also not irresistible. It is not irresistible. In other words, when he calls you, you can say no. When you are presented the gospel, you can refuse to believe. So that's at the root of the problem. It's the will, the sinful will of man. We cannot blame who is saved and who is not on God. Because God offers the same promises of forgiveness and life to every person on this earth. There is none that is not offered that promise. God wants that promise offered to all. Why then do some people not go to heaven? Their own stubborn refusal to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you still want to press it and say, but why? You know, like you're the little kid, why? 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 Okay. That's as far as we can say, because that is as far as the word of God goes. Anything beyond that is speculation, is speculation. So what we can say is, if you are saved, it is by the grace of God, the kindness of God. If you are damned, it is your own fault. It is your own fault. And to go any farther than that is to explore things that are not dealt with in the world, Word of God, and we are trying to go farther than we should. Than we should. Because it's not there. But this much is. And that's all we can say. Yes, Steve? Uh, he will remove unbelief. Okay? In other words, there's going to be Jacob is Israel. Yeah. Jacob is Israel. Okay, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. He's reviewing the whole mystery. At one time, the Gentiles were disobedient. But then, and what it's saying there is, uh, disobedience is a bad translation. I'll tell you how it ought to read. For just as you were at one time unpersuaded by God, 
but have now have received mercy because of their unpersuadedness. Okay? And that puts it in the realm of it's, it's not believing. Uh, disobedience has the implication that it's keeping the law. It's not keeping the law. When we change this to unpersuaded, we're dealing with faith. And that's what this is about. Okay? They were formally unpersuaded. The Jews were unpersuaded. And so because they were, the Gentiles received mercy. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Okay? So that's just Paul, in another way, explaining this mystery. This mystery. Mystery. And again, the emphasis is not they did not keep the law, it's that they did not believe. God wants to show mercy to all, even those who at the beginning were unpersuaded to believe in Christ. So God is opening, is very open to any person hearing the word and believing in Jesus Christ. He does not prevent that. He wants that. That is his will. Okay, what he's saying is if all the Jews would have been persuaded and believed to begin with, the Gentiles would have never gotten in. Ruth, you want to comment to that? There were. There have been, there have always been converts outside of Judaism to Judaism. Okay, to begin with. No, no, I'm, I, I know it's a logical thought process that you would think that. Now, God knows all things. And I said last week, you can always trust men to do a great job sinning. You can always be confident of that. You never have to doubt the sinfulness of man. And so you get into that God foreknew that this would happen and built it into his plan. That's the only way I know how to answer that. And we do make a distinction between foreknowledge and predestination. Just because he foreknew does not mean he forced them to do it. Yes. Okay, the question is, as difficult as this is, did the Roman church understand what he was writing to them? Or was it over their head? That's a good question. And I'm not sure we can, we can answer that. Now, we do know this. There were tremendous problems in Rome between Jews 
converted Jews and Gentiles. There was a lot of fighting, especially between Jews and converted Jews. Let me read you this from Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that was the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There was so many problems in Rome with the infighting among Jews and converted Jews that the emperor of Rome expelled the Jews from Rome. The only reason I bring that up is certainly the people that lived in Rome that experienced this, and he didn't expel, all the Jews were not expelled. Okay? We know that at the time of Paul, we believe there were as many as 12 synagogues in Rome. But the church had experienced such inner conflict that part of the reason Paul wrote these was to calm the conflict between Jews, converted Jews, and Gentiles. So that converted Jews and Gentiles would realize they were all from the same they were all grafted to the same tree. They were all one. Now, how well they totally understood this, I have no idea. I'm sure some of that, some of it was very much problematic for them. But we have to remember that ultimately, Paul wound up in Rome, in prison, and was there for a good while and may have sought to clear this up. Yes. Yes. Okay. And I believe it's healthy for us to realize there are passages of Scripture that we read and we're never going to fully understand what they mean. I had a wise mentor. Some of you know that Dean Hempelman has gone to heaven. He was my uh, vicarage supervisor, and he, his attitude was this. You need to preach one sermon a year that is so theological and so difficult that people do not understand it. And that way they will know that God is smarter than them, and so are you. Once a year. Well, I never really practiced that, but <laughs> but that was his that was his advice. But uh, that's a hard question to answer, Don, because it, it is difficult. I mean, look at look at the difficulty we have after years and thousands of pages of scholarship written on this. Verse thirty-two. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, may have mercy on all. Consigned. The word there actually means locked up or shut up. 
shut up inside, locked up in disobedience. All people, there is no escaping that verdict because only in that verdict can God show mercy to all. If all know they're disobedient, unpersuaded, let's say, then God shows mercy. He wants to lock up everybody in disobedience. He doesn't want anybody to think, I can do this myself. I don't need God's help. I can save myself. So he puts all under disobedience, condemns their disobedience, and that way he can seek to save everybody. Okay? Now, now Paul ends this chapter with some verses that point us to what we've been talking about. How far beyond this us this is. So verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Okay, the riches of God are, of course, the kindnesses God shows to us in Christ. That's true riches, what God gives us in Christ. His wisdom is in the way he has created and redeemed the world. His knowledge is that he is relationable, relational to his people. To know someone is to have fellowship and communion with them. So God gives us his riches in Christ. He shows us his wisdom in his creation and redemption. And he tells us that he knows his people. But God's ways are higher than ours. The Greek word that's used here is actually incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. His plan of mercy and grace is incomprehensible. So in other words, Paul is trying, has tried to explain it, but he realizes the complexities of what he's trying to explain. So he says this about God. 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? This comes from Isaiah. In other words, who would have known? And I'll, I'll put it in these words. Who would have known that after man destroyed God's creation with sin, that his mind would still be on mercy? Who would have dreamed that he would still show mercy to us? And there is nobody that was his counselor. He didn't call together a gang of advisors 
and ask, well, how, how should we save these people? Nobody counsels God. It was from him. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We can't repay God because nobody's ever given anything to God. God is the giver of all things. We have nothing to offer him in the big scheme of things. Therefore, we can't repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. I want to read you a couple of passages that come from elsewhere in the New Testament that kind of reverberate these 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 things the first one is from 1 Corinthians 8:6 for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom all things and through whom we exist okay Another one is Colossians, let's see, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And this is specifically talking about Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's where you get that phrase in the creed. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. There are passages like this that try to relate to us the majesty and the power of God. But words fail us. Words fail us. So this is how Paul closes this section of Romans. This section was 9, 10, and 11. <coughs> and we've been dealing this with this for on, on a number of sessions to try to get at what Paul is saying. And it's not easy. So it is appropriate for him to close the section with this kind of doxology to God. Because Paul is readily admitting it's too much for him, too. It's, it's beyond him. It's incomprehensible. And so we close this section, thanks be to God, and we can move on to much, much simpler things. Okay. In the rest of Romans. Romans 12 through 16 are considered a unit. Okay. A unit. What? Yeah. Yeah. So questions, comments as we finish this section that are answerable. Dennis. Okay, the statement is, he knows we can reject, and he knows the only reason we can believe is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, but how do we get the Holy Spirit? It's very simple. 
Anytime the word of the gospel is spoken to us, the Holy Spirit comes through the word of the gospel. So in other words, when you reject, you are saying no to the work of the Holy Spirit trying to get you to believe. Okay? You're pushing him away. Yes. You brought up the fact that this Yeah. You are rejecting. Yeah, and I, you know, that is a translator's decision. Is it disobedient to God to refuse to believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. So they went with that. But it's not the word disobedient in the Greek text. It's another word. But you see, this is the thing. Translators have to make decisions to do two things, to try to make it as understandable as possible and to try to make it good English. Okay? Unpersuadedness is not good English. So you just have to... And that's why studying... That's why we teach men to study Greek and Hebrew, because it does make a difference. Yes. 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 Jesus, even when he was so terribly hard on the Jews, was trying to get their attention so they would repent and come to faith. His goal was not just to be hard on them or just to beat them up. It was trying to get them to uh, abandon this thought that they could save themselves through the law so they would repent and turn to him. Yeah, Judy? Well, it's not our effort. Well, but at times we do. At times you catch yourself not listening to the readings in church when they're 614 verses long, like this morning. It's just part of our sinful nature, okay? That we don't want to do it, but at times we do. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we will begin chapter 12 next week. Oh, one more. Yeah, Mark. All right. Okay. Okay. Correct. Faith in the Bible is not as important as the object of faith. Let me say that again. The faith is not as important as the object of faith. When you have faith in Christ, the most important thing is Christ, not your faith. The object of faith is more important than the faith. All right. One more. The word mysterion, first thing action, that which awaits the... Don't worry about all this stuff again. That's right. That's right. It's a reason it's called a mystery. Okay? And while Paul tries to reveal part of it, he can't reveal the whole mystery. Because that is in the mind of God. That's what matters. The mystery of God is that the gospel went to the Gentiles. That's the real mystery, 
That's talked about in Ephesians. It's alluded to as a mystery there. But don't sweat the small stuff. God will take care of it. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.